tonight saved despite bigotry, despite plagiarism. This is a moral failure of Harvard's leadership. Harvard keeps its embattled president ahead, the professor whose work was lifted word for word by Harvard's president. She calls the whole thing a racial double standard. Grand strategy. Congress needs to pass the supplemental funding. Will Republicans give President Biden a way out of funding the unpopular war in Ukraine? Any national security supplemental spending package is about our own national security first. How Biden can keep the border open and still get a political win. Close quarters. New video shows Israel's fight against Hamas up close and personal. Now Israel plans to start flooding Hamas's tunnels rather than blowing them up. How long until the UN complains? And the Grinch. Every Who down in Whoville liked Christmas a lot, but the Grinch did not. We'll speak to one boss who thinks 15 minutes is plenty of time to spend spreading holiday cheer. All right, we start with breaking news on the Ferris show on television. First tonight, what exactly is President Biden's goal when it comes to the border and funding for Ukraine? Is he perhaps playing 4D chess? Today, Mr. Biden went through the motions of welcoming President Zelensky to the White House to talk about the Ukrainians' fight for freedom and the evils of Vladimir Putin. But if you really listen, it's almost as though Mr. Biden's heart isn't isn't in the fight anymore. We showed you last night, Mr. Biden would rather let Putin win in Ukraine than secure our southern border. It appears as though he has made that choice. But there is more to it than that. Funding for Ukraine runs out over the Christmas holiday, and Republican senators won't agree to more funding without Mr. Biden agreeing to close the southern border. Congress needs to pass the supplemental funding to Ukraine before they break the holiday recess before they give Putin the greatest Christmas gift they could possibly give him. The deal's pretty clear. Ukraine gets significantly more money for things like training, intel, and weapons. The money set aside for the border goes towards security enhancement, new immigration judges, and increased efforts to combat human and drug trafficking, along with an agreement to change the asylum rules, which would change the amount of people coming here. But President Biden doesn't seem to be able to decide which way he's going to play it. As you heard earlier today, he just said Ukraine funding or else Putin wins. But a few minutes ago, he seemed to agree there was a deal to be made. Compromise is how democracy works. And I'm ready and offered compromise already. Republicans would dispute that, but maybe he actually doesn't want to make a deal. Maybe it's all for show. And that is a real possibility. Our friend Eric Erickson quotes Republican senators playing out a different option. The thinking from these senators is that Joe Biden is using President Zelensky as a prop against the GOP. Biden will blame the GOP for a lack of funding and use that lack of funding to both blame the GOP for a strategic failure in Ukraine and force Zelensky to compromise on land with the Russians. Senator Mike Braun here, Republican from Indiana on the Budget Committee. Good to see you. What do you make of that theory? You know, it's a complicated dynamic. Uh, Let's start with where the Republicans are. Since I've been in the Senate, it's nearly five years I've never seen 41 Republican senators kind of override what leadership wanted to do. And on our side, in terms of leadership and Biden, they wanted to do the funding package with the border not even in consideration until 
41 Republican senators actually congealed and said, we either do that in a substantive way or we're not going to do the rest, including the Israeli package. And of course, Speaker Johnson sent that over. That could have been a done deal. Everyone is for that and with a pay for. But people don't like pay fors in this business either. No, I, I hear you. But do, is the Republican caucus, you think, united here in there's a border for Ukraine funding deal to be made? Only after you secure the southern border. And it can't be with something much different than what was in H.R. 2 that is already passed in the House. Remember, whatever we do here on the border, it's got to go back there and pass muster. And that's the complication. So help me understand this in where we're at right now. Do you think, I'll put it this way, why do you think to... Democratic senators and to President Biden. We're going to play Senator Murphy here in a second. The southern border is so sacred. We'll play the sound, let you react. They are asking for very severe, very draconian immigration policy changes, policy changes that they know could not pass if they weren't holding up support for the war against Vladimir Putin. Draconian? Uh, I would say don't make it too complicated. Look at how things were working during the Trump administration. It was very clear. It was at a record low in recent times. The Biden administration comes in. I was down there in April or so of 21. 18 of us went there. And it was going from uh, 10, 15, 20,000 up to 50 or 60. It's now 200,000 with 60,000 gotaways a month. That wasn't even a term then. I was down there with a bunch of Indiana sheriffs just about three, four weeks ago. It's even impacting places like Indiana. Oh, sure. Every state's a on other issues. So that, when they say draconian, no, they are for open borders, and that's hard for the progressive side of their party to get away from. They're in a real trick box here mm-hmm. because most of the American public knows the border is not in good shape. So, that even goes into some Democrats. Right, no, no, the polling supports that. Yeah. But I, why then are Republicans losing the messaging war on this? Because we got to get better at that. Uh, Democrats <laughs> generally run circles around us. Uh, we are a party that doesn't like to engage in policy. And then we want to over, uh, undo it, overturn it. We got to get better at having the dynamic in our favor from the get-go. And that's not natural to us. Until we get better at it, we're going to be uh, in predicaments like this. I would, I would rate that as an honest and fair answer, sir. Yeah. Um, let me see if I can get one more out of you. Uh, I think about the Ukraine funding package that's being offered. Uh, yeah, we spent a, a lot of money on Ukraine. On the other hand, just out today, 360,000 uh, Russian troops at the beginning of this, 315,000 Russian casualties. It's Ukrainians dying. Of the two major geopolitical foes we face, Russia and, and China, the Russian army has been severely degraded without a single American service member killed. How is that not a good return on investment that we should keep going for? I think it's an excellent return on investment. But like most things here, should we be paying for all of it? And should we be borrowing every penny of it? So it's always more complicated in terms of what you're actually accomplishing and is it sustainable in the long run? So they are our geopolitical foes. Russia, you know, being guided by Chi, keep that in mind. Sure. But can we afford to do it? When we're 33 trillion in debt, 42 trillion in Biden's budget in five years, 52 trillion in 10 years. Do the math. 
that takes over, we can't do anything sustainably. Europe needs to probably do more. It's in their backyard, but it has been a good return mm. on investment. It just but means just we not need keep to, investing. You, we, it's not sustainable. And today, okay. here's what I heard from Zelensky himself. They are starting to push their own resources. Help me understand this, though. If yeah. it's not sustainable, why then is it okay to do if you get a budget deal or if you get a border deal? Because it's, it's not sustainable it's the same amount if of money. we have to pay most of the bills for it. So you're so against it no matter what? I'm against it until it gets a more broad financing plan. Okay. And currently, we don't have that. And we're not in a position. They at least are probably raising revenues to pay for it. And I don't think they're borrowing from future generations. We do that on everything currently, and that's got to be noted. Good to see you, sir. You're Good welcome back here. anytime. We appreciate Thank the conversation, you. sir. Thank you. Israel will reportedly start flooding Hamas's tunnel network in Gaza with seawater to literally flush out the terrorists down below. It shows how the Israelis realize they are quite literally running out of time. Today, the Israeli Defense Forces released this helmet cam video of a soldier fighting a Hamas gunman in the bombed-out buildings. At one point, the Israeli gets blown down by a grenade, only to get back up and charge at the second Hamas gunman. It almost looks like a video game, but it's not. And no one can imagine how dangerous taking on Hamas in tunnels would prove for the Israelis. But Hamas leadership lives in the tunnels to race against time, hence the giant seawater pumps that will now flood Hamas's tunnel system. In a private fundraiser today, President Biden referring to the Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu says, I think he has to change, and this government in Israel is making it very difficult for him to move. President Biden has also talked about how the Israelis are losing the international communities. We've told you for a couple of months, President Biden will keep upping the pressure on Israelis. He talked about it again publicly today. He says the Israelis are running out of time. The more international support the Israelis lose, well, then President Biden has the ability to be a little tougher on Israel. Now, doesn't he? Over the past 15 years, Hamas spent or stole billions of aid money, much of it from the United States, to build a tunnel system more extensive than the New York subway under Gaza. They did it for right now, this fight with the Israelis. They know. There's massive pressure on President Biden about civilian deaths, and they know that makes him uncomfortable. It's starting to show. Hamas is playing for time. Israel is running out of time. So we have just one question about Israel's plan to flood the Hamas tunnels. How long will it take for the UN and progressives in Congress to start complaining that Israel is drowning terrorists? You can read more on that tomorrow in War Notes, which is our daily newsletter. It gives you a free look at the show every day at 4 p.m. Go to warnotes.com and subscribe. The notes started as our internal email discussion about the most important events of the day. It's literally how we put the show together. You get to be a part of that conversation. You can respond to the email with your thoughts or join us on social media at Leland Vittert on Instagram or Twitter, warnotes.com, and subscribe for free. Nikki Haley, who has made both funding Ukraine and funding Israel a big part of her platform, has picked up a big endorsement in New Hampshire. The Granite State's very popular governor, Chris Sununu, is the latest Republican to say Haley's momentum should send her to the White House. There was a sweet older woman who has come to a lot of events. 
and I saw her coming in here, and she said, so are you going to finally endorse Nikki Haley for president? You bet I am. Let's get this thing done. We are all in on Nikki Haley, undoubtedly. Okay. Rarely in my career in television have I had to bleep an endorsement, but always new. New day for something. Haley has seen her poll numbers jump more than 16 points in the last three months. Chris Hahn is here, host of the Aggressive Progressive podcast, syndicated Chris Hahn um, radio show. All right, Chris, um, you've said the Democrats should be scared of Nikki Haley. Does this make you more scared? Yeah. Uh, I think that if she wins in New Hampshire, which is possible, I don't know that it's likely yet, but it is possible she could take him out. I think once you show Trump can be beaten, others will try to help you beat him. And I think that that's a possibility. Look, Sununu's very popular among independents in New Hampshire who have the ability to vote in the Republican primary this January. Considering there's no uh, viable opponent to Joe Biden in New Hampshire, a lot of independents might want to weigh in and say, hey, here's our chance to stop Trump. Let's vote for Nikki Haley. Sununu is as popular as they come. He comes with an organization on the ground that has been very successful in New Hampshire. Uh, Let's see what happens. Yeah, Sununu and politics in New Hampshire have gone together for like 40 years. So they've got some. You kind of stole my thunder, but I'm going to put up the chart of approval of Governor Sununu's job performance. 63-35. That is popular as any governor uh, gets. And then you put up. Um, Haley, whose star is rising, right? September 17th, Haley 2.5, Trump 44. Uh, now Haley almost at 19, Trump at 46. So it's starting, the, the lines are starting to converge. I, I'm fascinated by the point you brought up of, of Democrats and Democratic leading independents who might say, I'm really kind of tired of Joe Biden. Um, and talk, part of the 51% who say they would vote for Nikki Haley uh, against Joe Biden. You really think that's possible? I don't know that Democrats are going to vote for Nikki Haley against Joe Biden in the end of the day. But I do think independents in New Hampshire are going to vote against Donald Trump in New Hampshire. I think that is very, very possible. Uh, And I think given the fact that she is going to tap in to a very successful political organization in New Hampshire led by its governor, that helps her dramatically. In that, in that state. Uh, look, you and I have both been to New Hampshire for these primaries in our career. It is very cold and organization matters. Who are you going to help? Who's going to help get your people to the polls? Now, look, New Hampshire uh, voters take this very seriously. They come out. It's a, it's a scene up there. But having a good organization with a lot of favors in the bank, like Governor Sununu has, pushing for you can be very helpful for somebody. And I think Nikki Haley's the right candidate for that state. And I think she's the Wrong candidate if you're Joe Biden. You do not want to be facing off against Nikki Haley. Uh, I I think she is very, very difficult to beat. And I think it would would wreak havoc on Democrats across the country, not just in the presidency, uh, but in the Senate and the House as well. I'm going to correct you just a little bit in the uh, effort to be both fair and factual. Um, I was overseas during the, during uh, some primaries and then was hang, hang, uh, holding down the anchor desk, looking forward to going to New Hampshire um, this time around. And I think it's going to be interesting, as you point out, to see what's going to happen. I, I, and how I, will, these... I will tell you this. I will tell you this. 
bring warm clothes, my friend, because yeah. it is yeah. cold. <laughs> and then, and yeah. or, that's, no, why, I, I, that's why, look, having an organization that's got somebody with heated vans all over the state driving your voters to the polls, that's a pretty good thing. Yeah, what it, where are we, though, in the political arc of where endorsements either matter or don't matter? I, and I, I'm fascinated that a Democrat is, is at least a little bit nervous about this, but why all of a sudden does Chris Sununu in New Hampshire's endorsement matter? And we're, we're looking at live pictures or maybe perhaps tape from the rally a few minutes ago. But it, it was it was there's a real crowd there. People in New Hampshire actually care. Do we do we look yeah. at New Hampshire differently than we do the rest of the country where you and I probably agree that that endorsements don't mean much? I don't think in a general election or in a big state election, endorsements matter at all. I think in a state like New Hampshire, in a month like January, February, when we have these primaries, I think his, his endorsement and his organization matter a lot. I think they are worth their weight in gold. I think the, uh, the, and I think the organization matters as much as the man. I think the organization hmm. behind Sununu, the Sununu family that, you know, like we've, like we've alluded to, have been uh, running New Hampshire one way or the other for generations. Uh, I, I think that that's very important in a primary situation in the cold winter months in New Hampshire. So having that organization and that ground game available to you, which is what you really get when you get him. Right. Uh, I, I think that's very valuable to her. And I think Donald Trump should be very concerned about this. I know he's going to hmm. blow it off when he finally speaks about it, but he is wrong. This is a guy who could help her win. Now, you know, Donald I'm, Trump crushed I, in New Hampshire. Yeah, Han, you, you, well, yeah, look, yeah. You, 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 you surprised me, okay? You, you disagree with Donald Trump about something. It's unbelievable. Um, we got to run, but uh, excellent points, my friend. We'll talk soon. Coming up next, the incredible life of Harvard's president, soon. Claudine Gay. She survives charges of bigotry and plagiarism. Normally, that would be disqualifying for the president of a university. Carol Swain, the woman Harvard's president allegedly plagiarized from, joins us to explain why Gay seems to get a free pass. Ms. McGill, at Penn, does calling for the genocide of black and brown people violate Penn's rules or code of conduct? Yes or no? If the speech turns into conduct, it can be harassment. Yes. I am asking, specifically calling for the genocide of LGBTQ people, does that constitute bullying or harassment? It is a context-dependent decision, Congresswoman. Now, that's not real. That's AI-generated audio of Congresswoman Elise Stefanik questioning UPenn's college president, substituting the phrases black and brown or LGBTQ for the Jews that she actually asked about in the testimony. It's shocking to hear, right? But the same answer about calls for the genocide of Jews did not get the president of Harvard fired. Today, Harvard said Claudine Gay would stay on as president, despite her actual congressional testimony last week. So the answer is yes that calling for the genocide of Jews violates Harvard Code of Conduct, correct? Again, it depends on the context. So if you're a black female and hired by a board committed to DEI, well, that doesn't get you fired. But what about plagiarism? And Harvard takes plagiarism seriously from the Harvard Crimson in a six-year high, 27 undergraduates were forced to withdraw from Harvard in 2021 due to honor code violations. That's six people in a year. Since Gay's testimony, a number of journalists started looking into Gay's past, including her dissertation. The Washington Free Beacon and independent journalist Christopher Rufo 
called attention to a few passages. There are many. But consider these similarities with the work of world-renowned professor of law and political science, Carol Miller Swain. Here's just one example you can see highlighted. On the right, in blue, Carol Swain says, since the 1950s, the re-election rate for the members, the House members has rarely dipped below 90%. Gay on the left, in red, without quotes, the same thing, just adding a comma in the word incumbent, saying since the 1950s, the re-election rate for incumbent House members has rarely dipped below 90%. Again, from the Harvard Crimson, Harvard's own newspaper, the Crimson, quote, independently reviewed the published allegations, quote, some appear to violate Harvard's current policies around plagiarism and academic integrity. With us now, author of The Adversity of Diversity, political scientist and legal scholar, Dr. Carol Swain. It's nice to see you, ma'am. Thank you. Um, To be fair, Harvard has cleared... Uh, Miss Gay, Dr. Gay, of plagiarism. I'm just interested as an academic, um, do you think she committed plagiarism? I mean, there's no question that she uh, committed plagiarism. There are some Harvard faculty members who are trying to redefine what is plagiarism. We all know what it is. And so she did violate that. And it was not just in her dissertation, It was also in some of her publications. And my beef with her is not really about, I mean, so there were two passages from my award-winning book, Black Faces, Black Interests, The Representation of African-Americans in Congress, that she quoted without uh, citations. When I examined her work on Monday, her publications, the one that led her to get tenure, what I noticed was not passages of my work, but her whole research agenda was building on the ideas from my award-winning book because it was the seminal book at that time on representation, minority representation. It would have been expected normally that she would have acknowledged in, you know, a paragraph or she would have, uh, she would have uh, either put you in the, the credits or something. Or, yeah. Well, she, she, would, she, would, she would have it in the, uh, uh, the, the uh, book cited in the bibliography. Sure. But the work was seminal. She was building on my work, and she got away with that. And I don't just hmm. blame her. I blame her committee members because normally if it's, if it's a leading uh, a piece of work, you have to engage it, either to refute it or to affirm it. By her not uh, citing my work, that hurt me long term. Because in academia, you are rewarded by the number of citations that you have. And so she uh, did her publications. Her work was derivative of my work. In my opinion, her publications did not merit uh, tenure uh, at an Ivy League school. Yeah, it's almost like she's stealing. I mean, the way you put it, and I didn't realize this in academia, it's almost like she's stealing from you if she's taken, if she's not giving you credit. And and that's how people move forward in academia. What I'm wondering about, and you were, I think it's fair, fair to say a trailblazer in uh, black women in in education, especially in in the political science world and the way that you you have been. I'm wondering if you think that Harvard protecting her in this way, this is a woman who uh, clearly is a bigot based on her testimony, but uh, you've laid out a case for why she is also someone who has violated another set of ethics that Harvard says they, they, they hold dear, which is academic integrity. I'm wondering if you think protecting her hurts the progress that has been made in the hard work of you and other 
black women in academia. And I'm wondering if, if so, if it does hurt that, why is, is this so sacred to Harvard, do you think? But they're hurting their brand uh, for DEI. And it doesn't just hurt black people. It hurts every student uh, at Harvard or, or, or even the ones who have graduated because it devalues their degrees. And you can't be, say, oh, poor uh, Claudine Gay, you know, maybe she came from the inner city, a disadvantaged background. She went to the most elite boarding school in America, uh, and, and that's where she got her K-12 uh, education. And so you can't say that she didn't know what plagiarism is. She has been, uh, you know, just promoted along, given awards for her writing. She won a prize for her senior thesis and also for the dissertation that was plagiarized. And, uh, and so now she got caught. And instead of the university holding her to the same standards that a white man or white woman or a, or a conservative black male or female would be held to, they've decided to dig in deep. And I think that it's a tragedy for American education. It's a tragedy tragedy for Harvard. And uh, it hurts everyone, not just black people. Fair enough. Um, she really Dr. should Swing? resign. <laughs> yeah, I... I- I, I say dare to dream, uh, perhaps, on that one. But, Dr. Swain, it was good having you. As I said to you in the break, I had not uh, been familiar with your work before. I'm glad I am now, and we'll have you back, ma'am. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Of course, this all came out of last week's hearing, where members of Congress questioned the three amigas, the three amigas in anti-Semitism. That is the presidents of MIT, UPenn, and Harvard. UPenn's president is out of a job. As we have told you, Harvard and MIT's president remain on the job. Here's Congressman Burgess Owens with Harvard's president. Is it okay to segregate people based on their color? Yes or no? I oppose segregation. Okay, well, I do too, but it's happening on your campus, okay? And with us now, Congressman Burgess Owens of the great state of Utah. Good to see you, sir. Thank you. Where does this go from here? Well, Lena, first of all, thanks so much for this opportunity. This is actually what our country's needed for a long time. I have, have, have to keep in mind what we're seeing on the streets is not something that's happened over the last couple of years. Uh, this has been an attack on our, on our culture, our children, um, for, for decades. And it's people like this, these folks who have no idea what it is to go out there and truly, um, um, debate, to work hard, to use meritocracy to get where they are. They, they, they fit a certain, they check the boxes. Uh, that's why affirmative action was such a, a, a dreadful thing for our country. She fits perfectly with affirmative action. They don't care. They don't care about the, the, the merit of, of, of what she's done and how she's done it or the competition process. If she's the right color, if she believes in DEI, if she, if she goes around with the Marxists, which is to divide us and not bring us together, she checks the right boxes. And these are the kind of colleges that keep these people in, 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 uh, uh, in, in with a job. Uh, the All great right. thing is America's are waking up, the Leland, and we're gonna, gonna start holding these people accountable for sure, these colleges. Yeah, look, what's, what's happened and how, and I will use this pejoratively, these people, uh, progressives, uh, have been exposed in terms of their anti-Semitism and how they, they claim to champion diversity and equity and inclusion so long as it is only people that, that they view as the oppressed rather than the oppressors and on and on and on. Um, this has been a, a real awakening. I think Dr. Swain was right that um, this has caused people to really question now the DEI movement. I think about the problems that we have in our country. You laid out why this is a problem. Uh, we have an open border, as you know, $33 trillion in national debt, high interest rates, 
Social Security and Medicare are going to become insolvent. Uh, planes seem to be almost running into each other on a weekly basis because of problems with air traffic controllers. The V-22 Osprey is grounded right now. Uh, 34% say they're choosing to skip Christmas presents due to financial pressures. We've got real problems in America. I'm wondering why this is a problem. Private universities, you, uh, which Harvard and MIT are, why is that the purview and why is DEI there the purview of Congress? Just, just first of all, think about what you just went through, and you could have, we could spend the next 30 minutes talking about more issues. Oh, yeah. It's called chaos. Uh, understand that there's an ideology, there's a mindset, and it's called Marxism, that thrives on chaos. Uh, the, the, the goal of, of, of those on that side, they've used uh, 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 misery as a political strategy. The more hopeless we are, the more panicked we are, the more we think of, of, that everybody that's not our color, that's not our culture, is our enemy. The more we think that way, the more we depend on the government to get it fixed up. We the people, what we've done in the past is we look at each other and we look at meritocracy. We begin to see that we truly look at the value of inside out, not outside in. And we begin to, it begins to blend where, uh, where Americans more than anything else. Once we, the people, become truly American-focused, there's nothing more powerful. And so they're trying to divide us. Mm. What we're seeing, particularly as a party, we need to come together, my friends. We need to realize this misery is spread out to everybody. Their kids, no matter what, what the, the, the wealth of their families are dying on fentanyl. It's because of what's happening at the border. You have crime from this point moving forward. We're going to have to try to figure out how to, how to get it down because we have so much, so many illegal people coming to this country. We are at a position where I think we're going to come together, and this hearing was a good, a good, uh, good point to get started with. We realize we have some issues well, in these colleagues we need to, uh, need to address. F- fair enough. Um, it was a tough question. You gave uh, quite the answer to it. Uh, Congressman, it's good to see you. We appreciate it. Hopefully we'll see you before Christmas, but if not, uh, Happy New Year to you and yours. Merry Christmas. We'll talk soon, sir. Thank you, Leland. All the best. Merry yeah, Christmas. Th- yeah, thank you. Coming up next, doomed to failure. How a climate conference in Dubai ended with all the do-gooders fighting amongst themselves. And the Obama administration scientist who tells us why fossil fuels, yes, fossil fuels, are the answer to ending poverty around the world. In a shocking turn of events, the Worldwide Climate Change Conference in oil-rich Dubai might fail. In fact, it almost certainly will fail. Al Gore, as you can see, is despondent. COP28, he tweeted, is now on the verge of complete failure. The world desperately needs to phase out fossil fuels as quickly as possible, but this obsequious draft, meaning a draft agreement coming out of COP28, reads as if OPEC dictated it word for word. Even President Biden skipped COP28 in Dubai. After progressives threw a fit, he sent Kamala Harris. Maybe that was really the sign that failure was ahead. We have learned if you want to pay lip service and have something almost certainly fail, put Kamala in charge. The border comes to mind, expanding voting rights, COVID-19 vaccinations, workers' rights, closing the digital divide. She wears a lot of hats. Her portfolio reads like a Charlie Brown cartoon. Lucy just keeps taking the football of success away. And President Biden's attempt to sell electric cars isn't working either. Ford just dropped the production of its electric F-150. You can see that the president took a test drive in by half. They're not selling. Dr. Stephen Koonin, professor at NYU, former undersecretary for science at the Department of Energy in the Obama administration is with us now. It's good to see you, sir. I I'm still trying to figure out who thought having a climate change conference, if you wanted it to succeed in Dubai, was a good idea. Well, you know, it was doomed to failure independent of where it was. There are fundamental trends 
that just make it impossible to do what they're trying to do. All right. So with the agreement and what people are mad about, draft draft release Monday suggested countries could opt out or could opt in to cut emissions, fail to call for a phase out of fossil fuels. One suggestion, reducing both consumption and production of fossil fuels is just orderly and equitable manner so as to achieve net zero by on or before 2050. I guess this is my question here. The, the same progressive group that is so interested in equity is also so interested in eliminating fossil fuels. But if you think about the people who can benefit from fossil fuels the most, it's in cheap fossil fuels, it's poor Americans and poor people around the world, and the people who hurt the most by making them buy electric cars is poor people. So how do we, how do those two conflicting interests get resolved? No, they don't. And that's why the conference is a failure. There are six and a half billion people in the world who don't have enough energy. And fossil fuels are the best way to get them that energy. And they're going to do it no matter what the developed world tells them to do. Okay, so I think you've laid this out, which is I'm reading once again on the teleprompter, it says, uh, you know, Undersecretary for Science at the Department of Energy in the Obama administration, you must be sort of a heretic within the climate change group, not because what you talk about climate change, but what you how you talk about us needing to solve it, right? Well, you know, I'm a scientist and I can look at the data and look at trends and draw logical conclusions. And I don't think anybody will dispute what I say about the difficulty of changing the energy system. Okay, so Help us understand where the trend is going, and especially in terms of these things we're spending tens of billions of dollars on, like electric cars, like charging stations, and the like here in the United States. Well, you know, it's really hard to change energy because it has to be reliable. The facilities last a long time. And if you want to do electric cars, you need the charging stations and you need to produce the juice for it. Getting all those things to change at once is really difficult. If we try to do it over a century, we could certainly do it. But to try to do it over 20 years, uh, it's so disruptive, so expensive, and will cause political backlash. You make the point that the climate change conference is COP28, which is supposed to be the, the way of, of the future and how to, to save the planet, was doomed to failure from the beginning. Are you getting a sense among progressives and certainly among sort of the, the scientists who are intellectually honest about that rather than the green utopia types that this all might be backfiring? Yes, I, I think there is that sense in the air. The realities of trying to do this transition at the pace and scale that the progressives would like uh, are coming through. And you see the government start to back up on their goals. Suddenly nuclear power is something that you're allowed to talk about. One can go on and on, but you know, there's certain things you just can't deny about physics, economics, technology. The, the laws of physics cannot be repealed, nor the laws of economics. I think Warren Buffett said something about the laws of economics. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Dr. Kuhn, it's good to have you. This is an, you're an important voice here because I think reasonable people can agree that the climate is changing. Um, and someone like you can speak about uh, what really can be done about it. Thank you, sir. Uh, we wish you all the best for the holidays to you and your family. We'll talk soon. Great. Live pictures of the Capitol. Republicans are going ahead with their impeachment inquiry against President Biden. Will this be a great Christmas for President Trump or actually one for President Biden? How impeachment could help President Biden next. 
Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional grade industrial supplies. Count on real time product availability and fast delivery. Call clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Something we like to say on this show is never underestimate Republicans' ability to screw things up. Joe Biden claimed there was an absolute wall between his official government duties and his family's influence peddling schemes. This was a lie. All right, case in point, the impeachment of President Biden, which now looks like a go in the Republican-controlled House. A vote on moving forward will come either tomorrow or Wednesday, just in time for Christmas. Well, it perhaps is either a present for the twice-impeached former president who's been calling for it, or... It is a gift for President Biden, the one who is drowning in negative polls, who could use almost anything to give him a boost with voters. Cuomo's here. Look, what is the one thing that can unite Democrats right now around Joe Biden is an impeachment inquiry that's not going anywhere. Uh, Well, I don't know that it's not going anywhere. They only need a majority vote to advance it. But I just have to tell you, it's just so depressing. It's like you just change the R's and the D's and it's the same game. Mm. The men who were screaming, this is bad for the country. There's not a legitimate basis. This isn't what it's for. Let the people decide are now doing the same thing that they complained about. And it's just like Groundhog Day. And I feel bad for our audiences to have to go through it again. Well, you, we're only covering it briefly. I, I don't know if you are. What do you got on the show? And you, you only get one thing. I got Jim Jordan oh. on. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I'm like a total hypocrite. So our, our like audience, I'm saying, our I can't believe we're go going through it again. Yeah, our, our audience will go through it guy. in depth. All right. <laughs> yeah. There we go. Yeah. And it'll, it'll, be, it'll be interesting, right? Because you're going to pull, you know, Jordan was the guy who was a big defender of Donald Trump. Now he's, now he's yeah. on the other side. All right. Sounds good. Not just of we Donald will. Trump. He was a defender of the problems with impeachment different Ooh, see he wasn't see, fact-based they, they, about it he said as a property it's bad well cuomo cuomo has the research staff to get into this stuff it's going to be an interesting interview we'll see at the top of the hour my friend um somebody who cuomo knows pretty well is the guy sitting next to me uh this is a congressman who has actually solved a problem a significant problem this time of year the secret to throwing the perfect holiday party congress doing good work when we come back Time of year again, and nothing good comes from holiday parties, especially holiday office parties. Nobody wants to be there. So Congress is taking action. And in this case, Congress has actually solved a problem for us. Tim Burchett of Tennessee limits his party to 15 minutes, actually 16 minutes. It's a Carhartt Christmas, he calls it. He extended it a minute this year in the name of good cheer and to pack in all the fun to 16 minutes. The Grinch himself joins us. I, I mean, what, you're getting soft. Last year was 15 minutes. This year, 16 minutes. Couldn't cram it all in. That's okay. And this year we had Santa Claus. Uh, my buddy Jared Moskowitz um, from Florida, uh, every, somebody said to me, you know, you, you know, Santa Claus is Jewish. And I said, I said, hey, man, my Savior is Jewish. Why can't my Santa be Jewish? Okay, so he was there. We've got, the, we've got some pictures of this. So 15 minutes uh, from noon 
or sorry, 16 minutes, from noon to 12, 16, make your own peanut butter and jellies. Uh, how did this, did this come about? Well, last year, everybody has a Christmas party, right? Right. And they're usually terrible yeah. here, as you know. And everybody in Congress, and they always try to outdo themselves. And I thought, let's undo it. Let's just do it. I said, 15 minutes, everybody just comes and gets the heck out. And like, I said, it's like Kmart, guys. At, at 12, 16, I started blinking the lights. You don't have to go home, but you got to get the heck out of here. <laughs> you, can't, you, you have to go home, but you can't stay here. Uh, help me understand, I mean, is this like something you have against Christmas parties? Did you have a bad no, experience with no, Christmas parties? No, you know, one year, I remember I was in the state Senate. It was, election, it was coming up on election year, and I got invited. To, it was, I think it was 70 Christmas. I think I went to close to 60 Christmas parties, if you can imagine that. In one Christmas You're a popular party, guy. Nah, Did you wear really. the jacket to all of them? No, nah, well, it was pre, it was pre, my pre-Carhartt phase, I guess. I, no, I take that back. I've been wearing this Carhartt for close to 30 years now. Um, it was, did it before it was cool. Now it's a fashion statement. Everybody wears them. But I remember I went to one buddy of mine's house who's since passed away. And I went into his house, Christmas party. Everybody's lined up. I go in, and I'm talking to this guy. And I don't really know him. And I look up on the wall, and I'm thinking, why does this guy I don't know have his picture on my buddy's wall? And I realized I was at the wrong dadgum Christmas party. And, and nobody buddy, said anything. No, because I knew so everybody. Do you, think, you think this is going to become a thing, the 15, 16-minute Christmas party? I don't know. It's just one of our things. I am kind of a trendsetter, as you well know. In fashion, too. In fashion, too. As you notice, the camera is making love to me as we speak. So, Isn't that Cuomo's line? He stole it from me. Cuomo, you can't dad down him. <laughs> he's I swear. Listening. No, I know. He's always, he, he, you know, he says, I'm g- he's going to take me around New York, get pizza and take yeah. me fish and all this stuff. I haven't gotten an invite. Have you gotten an invite? No. I haven't gotten an invite. So I don't know what's going on with him. All right. So do you think, that, is this something Congress could take up? Could you legislate that, Cong- you know, all Christmas parties? If you get into leadership, are you going to make all Christmas parties well, 15 minutes? let me correct you. I will never get into leadership. I don't raise enough money. I don't kiss enough butt. And, okay. And so uh, so uh, Congress, Christmas, congressional Christmas parties. And the last thing you want is Congress regulating anything, much less Christmas parties. Yeah, but they, why can't you regulate stuff that could help us all out? Regulating Christmas parties could help us. Oh, man. Then there'd be like, you'd have to have a certain amount of food, certain amount of drink, certain amount of music. It'd be awful. It'd be so politically correct. Nobody'd want to come. Yeah, so we, have, we have, I wanted to go through this. Um, Representatives uh, Benson Wahlberg provided musical entertainment. Yep. Uh, Moskowitz, the Jew, dressed up as a Santa. Um, DIY peanut butter and jelly bar. You had Mountain Dew. Mountain Dew, yeah. All right. Not out of a jelly. Okay, is there, a, is there anything you learned? Oh, oh, wait, I did have a, um, I walked around with Ritz crackers and wheat thins. It, it was charcuterie. 